Hello, and welcome to the Learn It podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. In our first series, we're looking at how to reopen education settings in the wake of COVID-19, including how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, education reporter Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy, a California-based nonprofit, which if you hadn't heard about it before COVID-19 hit, you probably have now. It offers free online lessons, practice work, and learning tools in a huge range of subjects and grades. When the pandemic hit and the world's students were sent home to figure out how to learn online, demand for Khan Academy soared. Registration for students and teachers increased five to six times, for parents 10 to 20 times, and usage of the site skyrocketed to 75 million minutes a day. I loved our conversation because Sal has superhuman energy and a tremendous sense of purpose around providing free online learning. Over the past five months, he has been working furiously to help students, parents, and teachers, including an Ask Sal Hour, during which he's interviewed the likes of Francis Ford Coppola and Bill Gates. Today, we talk about COVID learning loss, what works and what doesn't work with online learning, the back-to-school tools he's creating to identify learning gaps and fill them. They might just lose their ability to engage in school properly. We don't know what will happen, but there's, there's a world where those kids could kind of just completely disengage. A few other topics we hit on include his decision to make Khan Academy a nonprofit and some really cool book and TV recommendations. Sal, how are you? I'm doing all right, Jenny. When did you first realize like Khan Academy was going to be kind of in crazy high demand? And what did you do about it? Yeah, as I think I believe it was early February, we got an email from a teacher in South Korea saying that he was leaning heavily on Khan Academy during school closures in South Korea. And that was the first time that was like, oh, wow, this this COVID thing, which at the time for all of us in the States felt like a very abstract thing that was happening in Asia. uh, This has an implication on education. That was kind of the first aha. And then obviously, and then we started thinking maybe this will this will eventually spread to the US and much of the rest of the world. And so when we started to see the COVID cases pick up, when there started to be a first few cases, actually it was in our, it was in the county that I'm in, in Santa Clara County in the US, we're like maybe this, we might end up in a situation like, like much of Asia was in. And then obviously there was that, I believe it was the first week of March where people started talking very seriously about it. A couple of the local schools here uh, closed down because there was uh, the contact tracing uh, made them close down. And, and we started saying, you know, this is kind of us. We've got to step up here. Uh, so we started stress testing our our servers, see if we could handle more load. We started just going through the thought processes. Oh, okay. If next week or in the next two weeks, schools close in California or around the country or around the world, what are people going to need? And we had a lot of the core subjects across grade levels that families would need, especially in math and science, but we also have a lot of humanities. We've just launched English and language arts. We have early learning with Khan Academy kids, but above and beyond that, they're going to need supports. How do you structure the day? How do you make sense of it? How do you make sure kids get enough rest and play and time outside while also trying to somehow model uh, of what a school day might look like? Uh, how do we support uh, parents and teachers? Uh, so we started scheduling webinars. We put out daily schedules. 
uh, and uh, just trying to package all of the, the content and, and software we've been creating over the last 10, 12 years in a way that's very digestible for families. And then that first week when the closures hit, yeah, I think that Monday our usage was up 80%, then Tuesday it was up 125%. And then at the peak of um, the school year, during the school days, we were seeing about 250 to 300% of normal traffic. So in a normal school day, school year weekday, we see about 30 million learning minutes per day. And that had increased to 80, 85, 90 million learning minutes per day uh, in, in late March, April, and, and early May. Obviously, we're still at actually 200%, even though we're in the summer now. And was the distribution of how people were using it the same, or had that changed as well? Broadly speaking, you know, regardless of how you slice and dice, if you look across geographies, everyone had roughly increased proportionally. A few countries grew more than others, but roughly that 250 to 300%. The subjects they were using, it was still heavily math. About half of our usage is math usage. The other half is mixture of science and, and other humanities and test prep. Uh, in terms of how they were using it, the way that you get to that 250 to 300% of normal usage, we were seeing about 60% more people coming and they were spending on average about 60% more time. Uh, so yeah, it's just kind of all, all of the above. Go back to that comment of you're realizing like, oh wait, this is us, right? Like this is what we're built to do. What was your feeling about that? I think the, the realization was, is that it's if it's not us, who else is going to do it? Because the schools, in their defense, were just trying to figure out how do you do lunch programs? How do you do special ed? What happens to childcare for families? What, you know, there's all sorts of really, really complicated things. So they were spending a lot of time with epidemiologists and other social service issues, and frankly, didn't have the time, the teachers didn't have the time or the supports to figure out literally in a matter of days, how do you turn into some type of virtualized hybrid curriculum that is not bound by time or space. And frankly, we're still in that state. You know, the, the, school, the school system, they've just got out of the meetings with the epidemiologists to think about what back to school could look like physically. Uh, they, but they really haven't been able to put a lot of energy into, well, what could the learning actually look like? And this is obviously something not only have we been building software and content for it for a, a while now, uh, but we've been thinking about, well, how in general, pre-COVID, how can learning not be bound by time or space? How do we move to a competency-based learning world where it isn't based on seat time or how long you're in a seat or where that seat is, but how do we get you so that you actually learn the material and that you can, you can prove that knowledge? How do you mix things, asynchronous learning at your own time and pace on a platform like Khan Academy with synchronous experiences? And you know, traditionally, when we thought about synchronous experiences, we imagined in-classroom synchronous experiences where a teacher is able to do a focused intervention with students or have a Socratic dialogue. Uh, but now, obviously, those synchronous experiences are happening over video conferencing, over Zoom or, or Google Hangout or, or whatever else. And so yeah, we, we did and actually do, and that's where a lot of my time is right now over the summer, trying to, trying to put some structure and frameworks around that so that as we go to this very unusual back-to-school, educators and parents and students uh, don't feel completely unsupported. So sort of in response to that, with everything you knew before and everything you've seen now in the past few months, you know, what are you confident about saying works with online learning and what doesn't? What can we improve? Oh, well, the list of improvements, there's, there's many, many. I have a list of probably, you know, 50 things I would wish I could, you know, improve on Khan Academy tomorrow. But the, um, I, I think 
this isn't introducing new ideas. It's highlighting the old ideas. You know, if you, if you think pre-online learning, if you just think about when you and I were in school, and things have changed a bit, but they haven't changed a lot. We all remember being in a, in a classroom, having to be relatively quiet, trying to appear attentive. And, you know, for those of us who've taught, you've also been that teacher in the room where you see a bunch of blank faces. You have no idea whether people are understanding what you're doing or not, and, but you feel pressure to go through the motions of covering the various standards that you have to over the year. And you say, well, I, I, at least I did my job, <laughs> covered the standards. Uh, and, and even pre-COVID, we've said, well, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that that is what's best for students. Uh, in fact, there is a lot of evidence that the more interactive you can make the class time, the better. The more that you can, and every teacher knows that when they have a class of 30 kids, those, those 30 kids have 30 different um, gaps in their knowledge, gaps from previous years. They learn at different paces for different concepts, but it's very hard for a teacher to differentiate by themselves. So these are all pre-COVID notions. Now you go to a COVID world, the world that we've been in and we are in and we're likely to be in for at least the next six months, and those exact same issues matter, but they're just exacerbated. Uh, you, you know, if, if a passive in-person lecture was, was bad or tedious for everyone involved, imagine a passive Zoom lecture. Right. How do you make that more interactive? How do you create community? How do you support each other, not just academically, but also emotionally? Uh, that becomes even more important in this COVID hybrid world. And then you lean more heavily on the asynchronous, where the students are learning at their own time and pace. And this is something we've always believed, but in the, in the constraints of the traditional academic model, it's been hard because people have felt so much pressure to go through the traditional motions to find that time and space for the personalized learning. But now, obviously, you know, people aren't doing five days of Zoom instruction uh, in every subject right now. The, the schools that are doing it really well, I mean, my, my children's school is doing a great job. They're doing two to three sessions that are maybe 35, 40 minutes per, per week per subject. And then students have time with their advisors, which is a, who are faculty members, to review their goals, the goals that they need to be achieving for the most part independently, and reflect on it and, and think about best practices so they can, they can develop better work habits. Does that feel like a formula that works? Yeah, and it's different for different age groups and different subjects, but that's exactly the type of stuff that we're, we're actually going to be putting out over the next, next few months, just framework so people could think about that. But what we've been seeing that works well, and, and I've been seeing this personally, is let's say math, just to make things tangible. If you're able to do, for older students, for high school students, if you're able to do 45 minutes a day of that in asynchronous personalized practice, and if you go to the lower end of the age spectrum, if you go to kindergartners, first, second graders, if you're able to do 20 minutes a day, that's a good dosage, so to speak, of that asynchronous um, independent work. And then during, and then for the synchronous, if you're even able to get two group synchronous sessions where the teachers can put up interesting problems that the people work through together, they can put students into video conference breakout rooms and make the students work on those product pro, uh, problems together and then uh, come back and then they can think about how they solved it. And then at least one check-in a week, maybe more, where the teacher or the parent can review goals with the students. And there's even some models where it could be an older student reviewing goals with a younger student. But that last piece is actually has historically been missing from your traditional school system. Uh, but 
actually, I would think whether you're pre-COVID or in traditional school system or even the COVID world, that actually might be the, the, the real uh, magic ingredient. You know, I think a lot of teachers might be, well, that sounds great. But wait, if I have 30 students times 20 minutes, that's 10 hours of just one-on-one sessions. But it's balanced with the notion that uh, you're, you're doing less synchronous lecture time. Right. I think what you just said was maybe COVID has helped us see how important that dialogue is. And it was just as important when they were in the classroom because there's 30 kids, because they have 30 different learning styles. But maybe this moment is going to help us recognize that and redesign around that. Do you have hope that that might happen? I do, because I think it's going to be, this is going to, you know, this is going to be for at least the next six months, probably all of next school year is going to have to be some model like this. And I think if people start to lean in on the, oh, let's, when we get on video conference, let's talk about your goals, who you are as a person, how, how you know, what, what are your work habits? If, if that muscle starts getting built in the education system and people start experiencing it, I think it'll be very hard to take away. But it's not like we're just adding. I think people also realize that you can take away certain things, that you don't need six hours or five hours of lecture uh, uh, a week. Uh, students don't feel particularly engaged there. And I think most students would, would not say that they're, they're learning a ton during, during those lectures. But that's kind of an amazing reshifting. If that does happen, and who knows if it does, but if it does, that's, that's an amazing reconfiguration of how we think about a school day. So see if we get there. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing to get ready for school. I think everybody, as you say, is in back to school mode. What comes next? What are the biggest challenges about getting back to school? And what are you guys doing to try to address that? Kids are going to show up, whatever showing up means, with a larger variance of gaps, larger variance of preparedness. And so what we've been doing is, as much as possible, we've been trying to keep people learning through the school closures and through the summer. But we know that it's not all children that are going to be able to engage during that time period. So we've been creating above and beyond the the grade level courses that Khan Academy has. And, And this is in math. We have courses in other subjects. But above and beyond the grade level courses, we've been, call, we've been creating what we're calling get ready for grade level courses, which are, you know, imagine you are a rising sixth grader. You can take the get ready for sixth grade course, and it starts in some very basic concepts that most sixth graders would know, but they can accelerate through those really quickly, but then quickly identify where their gaps might be if there are any, and then make sure they have a strong foundation going into sixth grade. And so a lot of students who might be ready for sixth grade, they'll go to the get ready for uh, sixth grade we have something called a course challenge, which is a bit of a summative assessment of the whole thing. And if they get, you know, a 90 plus percent on that, they're ready for sixth grade. If they get a 70% on that, they, they should brush up on the stuff they missed uh, and then they'll probably do fine. But if they got a, you know, 40, 50% on that, they should finish, make sure they show full mastery on the get ready for grade level course. And then you can either do that in parallel while you're doing the grade level course or you can do it beforehand. I could imagine a lot of schools this year are going to spend the first two, three weeks of the school year essentially in, in some form of a catch-up mode, some form of a, of a foundation building mode. Are you finding schools to be more receptive to you as a company coming in saying, I can help you do this? Yeah. I, you know, I think a year ago, if, if, and I was talking to schools and school districts saying, hey, you know, uh, kids have these gaps that accumulate over time you know, learning doesn't happen over the summer. You need a way to get kids caught up. You need a way for people to learn at their own time and pace. Everyone intellectually agreed with that. And so there was some urgency, but right now with COVID, especially as we go into this back to school, I'm sensing deep urgency uh, around schools and an openness to really try, you know, anything that has a chance of working. Because they know that the 
COVID status quo is not a good one. You know, by the time back to school hits, it's going to be five, six months that we've had to think about this. And so I think people are really hungry for a more cohesive, coherent way to think about this. So yeah, I, I definitely sense an unusual openness. And, you know, above the get ready for grade level plans, uh, you know, McKinsey, the, the, strategic, the strategy consulting company, they're doing a pro bono project with us where we are trying to document what were the best practices, what school districts really did great work um, during the first round of the closures. And then what is a bit of a playbook for back to school and how can districts and educators and schools make sure that they are prepared uh, for, you know, true, flexible, fluid, hybrid learning as we go uh, in, into, the coming, into the coming school year. It sounds interesting. Tell us a little more. Oh, well, this McKinsey project that we're talking about, this is, you know, our hope is in give or take about three weeks, uh, we can, we'll be able to start putting out some of the initial uh, work. Maybe it'll be a little bit longer than that. Definitely some time before back to school hits. That, that team, it's a kind of a joint team between internal Khan Academy folks and McKinsey folks. Uh, they are uh, surveying, you know, large urban school districts, smaller rural school districts, uh, school districts that have, you know, fairly high technical capabilities and school districts that might not. Uh, school districts that are heavily leveraging Khan Academy, school districts that are not, to try to create a holistic picture. Uh, because it's also not, you know, just as it's not one size fits all for every student, it's not one size fits all for every district or for every teacher. I think everybody will be very interested to see what comes out of that. Do you have a sense as to um, how bad COVID slide will be? I've heard you mention this idea of sort of a lost generation. Yeah, you know, we have partners, NWEA, they released a study about two months ago based on their, you know, 20 years of data of around the summer slide uh, that this COVID slide could essentially result in a year of lost learning. So not only will kids not be learning for five, six months, but they'll forget a lot or atrophy a lot of what they had learned the six months before. And what's I think particularly scary about that is it's not like every kid in the country is going to lose a year. It's, it's probably our children uh, who are learning, who, who have a lot of supports, a lot of resources. They're going to, in fact, they're not going to probably lose anything. They're probably going to gain um, over this time period because they're continuing to learn. And so, you know, if, if 20% of the kids are doing just fine in this world, that means there's probably a 20% of kids that are going to lose a year and a half. We're going to lose two years. And I think there's even something more powerful that psychologically that could happen that could be really devastating, which is they might just lose their ability to engage in school properly. Uh, you know, I think for anyone who's left the workforce for a long period of time, for a year, it's hard to go back to work. It's just a different pattern of life. Uh, so you can imagine for a 10-year-old who, you know, they, they had been in school for four years and, and especially in an under-resourced area, they might have not had the best experience at school. They might not have had the best supports for school, but all of a sudden they're out of school essentially for seven months, eight months. Even when they go back to school this year, it's going to be some type of a weird hybrid model. And if they don't have a, if their school isn't supporting it, then, you know, it could be a year that they're, that they're really not getting proper schooling. We don't know what will happen, but there's, there's a world where those kids could kind of just completely disengage. In terms of like progress around equity, I think we could lose decades. Any thoughts as to, I mean, we've talked about a few things, but what we can do to mitigate that? Yeah, I, well, I think it's, um, you know, not my hope, uh, you know, the silver lining is not only can we help mitigate it, but the mitigation process can make the post-COVID world better than the pre-COVID world. 
you know, some silver linings are people have been talking about the digital divide for 20 years now. And the digital divide in the U.S. has gotten a lot better in the school setting. But home access, COVID has shown a very uh, bright light on it, and that has been very unequal. Uh, But the silver lining is these districts have done, and government and philanthropy and corporations have done an incredible job in the first, I would say, six weeks of the crisis to help bridge that digital divide. Uh, New York distributed 300,000 laptops. Miami-Dade, I think it was almost 200,000 laptops. Uh, Los Angeles did something similar. So one silver lining is, and or mitigation, is that the device access, I think, is going to become much, much more. Um, it becomes a high priority. It becomes a must-have, not a nice-to-have. So that's one. I think a lot of what we've been talking about, moving more to um, uh, leveraging tools so that we can fill in students' gaps so that teachers are armed with information and data in real time so that they can really understand where kids are, really understand what the appropriate intervention is at at the right time. Um, Not only will that mitigate, but if those become more part of the DNA of the system, uh, then I think it'll be, it'll support the the highest needs students a lot better than what they were getting uh, before. So yeah, I'm I'm worried about the, the near term, but there is a kind of a, a positive brave new world that that we can we can graduate to what about the role of tutoring and I, it's kind of a funny thing to say to you that but a lot of countries are actually sort of talking about experimenting with subsidizing one-on-one tutoring for the kids who need it the most do you think this is a moment where that could become national policy should it become national policy it's well documented that tutoring small group tutoring or one-on-one tutoring by far is going to drive incredible outcomes for 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 students because uh, tutors, frankly, have always been able to do mastery learning. They'll talk to you, understand what you know and you don't know, and then they will personally fill in your gaps. It's well documented. You know, you get a, a one-on-one tutor teaching in a mastery learning framework. You could get one to two standard deviation improvements in a matter of months. The, the issue, of course, has been it's very resource intensive. You know, we spend a trillion dollars even with a kind of a 30 to one student to teacher ratio. It's, it's hard to imagine a paid one-on-one tutor model uh, that would not cost many times a trillion, a trillion dollars. But to your point, I think there's ways that we can get closer to approximating one-on-one tutoring that is scalable, that is cost-effective. Obviously, the work that Khan Academy does, I've always told our team, look, we're trying to build what a great tutor would do. Obviously, we're not going to be able to replicate a, a great tutor. Maybe artificial intelligence that you know, 20 years might be able to help. But still, as much as Khan Academy's done, it's still a far cry from being able to have a one-on-one session or a small group session with a human being who cares about you. And so that's why, and this, you know, COVID kind of stimulated this. This is something that I've been playing around with. I've been writing about since, you know, the beginning. I wrote about it in One World Schoolhouse uh, that, that was published in, back in 2012 that, look, what if we leverage, you know, volunteers to tutor students? What if we vol- leverage older students to tutor younger students and we make it a thing? And so this project is called schoolhouse.world. It's not a Khan Academy project yet. But it's a way for students to go on, and we're starting in math, uh, but the students to say what areas they need help in. And the taxonomy is the same as Khan Academy's taxonomy. So they're like, hey, yeah, I'm on unit three of algebra two, and I just don't get whatever, you know, how to factor a quadratic. Then the volunteer tutors slash teachers can say, wow, there's a lot of students who need help with that topic. At 7 p.m. Pacific time on Wednesday, I will schedule a a, a session on Zoom. So we we just started launching this about a week ago. And interestingly, right now we're getting more supply than demand. There's a ton of people who want to volunteer 
to be, and they seem to be really good tutors and we're not getting as much demand. And maybe it's because we're starting over the summer. So, but I think it's often a lot of people just don't know. <laughs> so I've been tweeting and, and I guess we're talking about it now, uh, but people should go to schoolhouse.world. You can get some free uh, high quality uh, uh, tutoring slash, you know, video conference classes. And I'm, I'm hearing about, I think in Tennessee has a program as well where they're trying to say, wow, there's a bunch of teenagers coming back from college who don't have summer jobs for obvious reasons and a bunch of kids who have some serious COVID learning loss, let's match make, right? Let's, let's have you two work together and the state is going to pay for uh, a stipend for these students to do that. So it feels to me, and I'm curious if you agree, that there's just a lot more thinking around this at this moment because of the crisis that we're in. Absolutely. Because I think governments, school districts, everyone realizes that if you just like kind of go with the flow, as we've been doing for the last couple of months, it's very hit and miss. Even within the same school, there could be one math teacher who's been able to virtualize really well and do everything we've been talking about. And then there might be another math teacher who might be a great math teacher in kind of a normal setting, but that math teacher is just having more trouble. And those kids, by random chance, are not getting a proper experience. And to your point, this the there's Khan Academy type tools or Khan Academy for the syn- asynchronous learning, but the synchronous, if you can provide a, a safety net to some degree for everybody, and that safety net actually can be in some cases higher than what they were getting before. Uh, but even this conversation, it makes me realize that I need to go talk to Tennessee and I know the UK is thinking about it. Uh, we, we should we, see if we can join forces. Your budget is $60 million. You're educating about 100 million kids. The U.S. government budget for education is a trillion dollars, educating 60 million kids in the K-12 system, I think. You're a not-for-profit. How are you funding all this? You know, we have 100, I think it's 107 million registered users, but obviously we're not providing the same level of support for all 107 million that, you know, the education system is is doing for for the 40 or 50 million in, in the U.S. Uh, but... To your, to your point, a lot of folks are using us. I mean, you know, we're the budget of a large high school and every day there's 90 million learning minutes on Khan Academy. You know, there's a lot of impact there. And, and even if you look at the social re- of return, you know, if you, however you want to quantify it, Khan Academy has the 200, 500,000 X social return to uh, cost uh, type ratio. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm out there and, you know, uh, for, for a guy who, you know, I was operating in a walk-in class, actually the same walk-in class that I'm in right now, 10 years ago, 60 million, it, it still causes a lot of stress for me, but it does feel like there is added uh, urgency and appreciation for the importance of this work. With that said, we're still running at a deficit. We're digging into reserves this year because our costs have gone up. We're trying to do more programs, all the stuff we've talked about. Our server costs have gone up. You know, we spend six, seven, eight million a year just on server costs. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, ask me in a couple of months <laughs> how, how we're doing, because we are, you know, we're throttling back in certain areas. Uh, you know, we're getting a lot of flack right now because we're, 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 we're likely to have to shut down our MCAT content because we have no resources for it. Uh, but at the same time, we're getting letters from young people saying this, you know, the tools y'all had for the MCAT were the main ways that we, we were able to, you know, help diversify med school and things like that. So it's, it's tough. Do you regret not setting up as a, a for-profit company? I know you have a mission to educate the world's children and that's a social mission, but I'm wondering if any part of you wonders, my God, this would have been a successful private company. For the most part, no. I mean, I have my, my moments where, you know, I'll, I'll visit a very uh, well-off friend and, 
<laughs> not that I'm, you know, I, I, uh, uh, I had a, a recent interview with Francis Ford Coppola and he, he, he said, you know, everyone wants to be a millionaire and billionaire, but he, he has a new word called sufficient air. And, and I am, I am for sure a sufficient air. I have, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I consider myself very fortunate, but no, I, I don't regret it at all. I, I don't think if, if we, it's true, if Khan Academy were for profit and we had venture investors who were interested back in 2009 and 2010, but if we had gone down that route, we would have, I think it would have forced us to become kind of a narrower player in a very monetizable space. I, you know, I'm a big believer in capitalism and market forces. My old day job was as an analyst at a hedge fund. But because of that job, I saw that there are times when markets don't work well or they work in a way that lead to outcomes that are not consistent with our values. And I saw this most often in healthcare and education and when I was a hedge fund analyst. You know, that was the underlying decision. Talent, I would say we've gotten in spades because I think the top talent of the world are actually drawn to missions over you know, you have to pay well, you have to pay competitively, but they're drawn to mission more than anything. And, you know, capital, it's an ongoing, we're trying to find sustainable sources of revenue, philanthropy. But once again, you know, my part of my job is to make that case as strongly as possible that we have a chance for, you know, the budget of a large high school to create an institution for the world that can serve billions over generations. <laughs> and, and that seems like a good deal. So hopefully I can make, still keep making that case. <laughs> um. Three fun questions. All right. Your favorite book on learning? My favorite book on learning is, well, it's not a learning science book. Uh, it's, it's Diamond Age. The essence is it takes place in a kind of a, a neo-Victorian dystopian future in Asia. And uh, there's these orphan girls who live on a barge, but they're able to get a bootlegged copy of this software that was written for an elite um, kind of nobility's daughter to essentially allow yourself to learn everything at your own time and pace. And because of that, these 200,000 orphan girls who live on barges are able to essentially take over the world. That book sounds so awesome. I can't wait to read that. What is your book recommendation that has nothing to do with learning? Well, this one has maybe a little bit to do with learning, but it's, it's, it's far enough that I will say, you know, uh, foundation, uh, Isaac Asimov's foundation, and it's actually behind me on the bookshelf right here. I, I cite that most frequently for the inspiration for Khan Academy. You know, it takes place 30,000 years in the future. Humanity has colonized the galaxy. There's a galactic empire. And there's this academic, Harry Selden, who has developed this new field of psycho. He's a psycho historian, which is kind of a combination of history, mathematics, economics. And it's able to predict large scale societal movements. And, and he's able to predict that there's a near certainty that the galactic empire is about to enter into a dark ages, you know, and it's a 10,000 year dark ages of fragmentation and war and famine and loss of knowledge. And so he decides to do something about it and collect all of the galaxies, the empire's knowledge into a foundation at the periphery of the galaxy. And, and so I think in the back of my brain, you know, when, when Khan Academy started becoming a thing, I was thinking maybe this could be like the foundation Maybe this could, you know, hopefully we don't enter into dark ages um, uh, or, or hopefully, you know, we can play our role helping society get into a, you know, a new level of, of enlightenment, so to speak. And what have you been binge watching in lockdown? Binge watching in lockdown. So I have to, so uh, this is a, a cartoon series from 2007, Avatar, The Last Airbender. I cannot recommend it more highly. I like, even now I'm kind of like, well, I, I, you know, I'm someone who I enjoy my work, but I'm like, I can't wait until this evening 
that I get to eat my keto ice cream. That's my other indulgence. And I'm watching three episodes a night of Avatar, The Last Airbender with my kids, and it's enthralling. Those are definitely three awesomely unique answers. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jenny. A few things struck me about this conversation. One is the idea that beyond COVID learning loss, which is a massive concern, is a potentially greater one related to kids who will just give up because school wasn't that great before, because it was really bad in lockdown, and pretty bad with whatever hybrid system comes when kids go back. We need to find these kids and make sure that they get engaged again. I also hope parents and schools check out Khan Academy's Get Ready for Grade Level courses and course challenges, because as Sal says, every kid has these Swiss cheese learning gaps and finding them and fixing them is always helpful, but could really help in this moment. Finally, I'm really interested in his schoolhouse.world project, which is matching teacher volunteers with students who need to learn certain things online, as well as the work that Khan Academy is doing with McKinsey to identify and highlight best practices from schools in lockdown. Also, I am totally reading The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. Thanks for listening and see you next week. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.